Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening your eyes to a new view of life. Thanks for joining us today. You know, each week as we approach the next podcast, we do so with a bit of a feeling of responsibility because you give us your time and your time's worth a lot. So we want to make this time together worth that investment. And because this podcast has become a regular weekly stop for thousands of people, it makes our sense of responsibility even greater. So if there were any message we would want you to hear today, it's that you're filled with immense potential. Even if you've fallen a bit, you can rise to make a significant difference in your life, the lives of your family members, and members of your team. And I believe deeply you are where you are in life for a reason, for a purpose. And perhaps one purpose is to rise in your influence, leadership, and ability to live a happier life. So I hope today that you hear something that can help you get a better view of your place in the world and how you can live to your potential. And when you're done listening today, if you find some good ideas here, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you automatically get the next podcast as it's released each week. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how to rise again, how to try one more time. The credit union where she worked as a CEO didn't open until 9 a.m., but Florence Rogers always got to work early. And April 19th was no exception. It was her first day back to work after taking a cruise, and she was rested and ready to go. Because the credit union was on the third floor of the nine-story building, it seemed to be the place that lots of people stopped each day to say hello. Often, the bank lunchroom was the building gathering place. Well, people working in the building or visiting would often stop in to get cash for lunch, to make a deposit, or apply for a loan. And as a result, Florence knew many of the 550 people that worked in the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. The job was who she was, was her identity. Her 33 bank employees were her family, and they celebrated everything, the birth of babies, cancer survivals, birthdays, and other important life events together. When Florence arrived, the bank was already getting prepared for the day. They had just built a brand new meeting room, and because the technology in the room was faulty, the staff huddled in Florence's office for the morning meeting. The meeting included seven department heads seated in a circle with notepads and coffee cups in hand. Just as the meeting was a few minutes underway, Florence needed to reach some papers from her computer desk, so she pivoted her chair to face her computer, looking back at the group, when a massive tornado-like force blew her away from her desk and slammed her into the wall. More concussive than the force was the sound. It was deafening. When she came to her senses, all she could see was pieces of concrete, wires, a huge cement pillar, and steel beam that had fallen to the floor beside her, smashing everything underneath it. When she looked to her desk and the rest of her office where her team had been sitting, everything, including her team, was gone. They had vanished. She couldn't comprehend what had happened. The only sounds she heard were papers fluttering in the air. She somehow made it to her feet, wiped the concrete dust from her face and eyes, and looked out into the expanse that used to be her building. She could see the other side of the building, the entire wall 
of her office was gone, and it looked like half the building was missing. It had been shredded apart. She looked for her team, but she saw no one in the rubble. She cried out for help, and two men she knew called out to her. They told her to walk to the edge of the destruction, and they grabbed her wrists and lifted her up, then led her out of the building. Once on the ground level, she looked desperately for any one of her employees. All she could see, though, was debris, concrete, and dust. She had horrible cuts on her hands and head, and she saw other wounded people everywhere. Most, she would later learn, had been cut and wounded by the large amount of glass flying through the air. You see, the entire north side of the building was made of large glass windows to capture the view of downtown. Well, finally, one of her employees, who had been down the street at the post office building, found Florence and took her to a safe place, wrapped her in his coat, and together they said a prayer. What she soon learned from the police who were flocking into the area was the explosion was likely a bomb. And they were moving everyone away from the scene because for some reason they suspected another bomb was in the area. Well, unbeknownst to Florence, at 8.50 that morning, an unemployed Army veteran had driven a rented rider box truck towards the federal building. As he approached, he lit the five-minute fuse that was burning towards a homemade bomb loaded in the back of the rented van. Three minutes later, he parked the rider truck in a drop-off zone situated under the building and the building's daycare center, got out, locked the doors to the truck, and walked away. His getaway car was parked three blocks away, and as he walked to the car, he tossed the keys to the rider truck on the street. At 9.02 a.m., the rider truck, containing over 4,800 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, nitromethane, and diesel fuel, detonated on the north side of the federal building in Oklahoma City. The blast blew apart one-third of the building, created a 30-foot-wide, 8-foot-deep crater in the ground, and destroyed or damaged 300 buildings within a four-block radius. Now, the collapse of the building only took nine seconds, and it was the collapse of the building that likely killed the majority of the 168 people who lost their life that day. Nineteen children perished, 15 of whom were in the daycare center. Miraculously, six children, all under the age of five, in the building immediately above the bomb as it was detonated, survived. They endured brain surgeries, months in the hospital, and significant loss, but have gone on to proudly stand as survivors. Of the dead, 108 worked for the federal government. Three people died in adjacent buildings from the effects of the blast. Now, the cowardly bomber and his accomplices were caught. Timothy McVeigh, while driving, was pulled over 90 minutes after the explosion for a traffic violation. When weapons were found in his car, he was arrested and the FBI and police would put the pieces together. The axle of the rented truck had a VIN number, and the number led police to the Ryder rental store, and the bomber had used his own name at a nearby hotel. Soon, he and Terry Nichols were convicted and sentenced to death. Now, in the blast, Florence lost more than half of her staff. They fell to their death and were mangled by the rubble. She also lost friends, endured years of physical suffering, including neck surgery, but she stepped up and testified at the trial of the bombers. After the bombing, she reflected on her life, and she said, My life had been busy, but so simple before the bombing. I realized that perhaps I had taken some things for granted. 
I assumed that I'd see my coworkers the next day, that I'd be able to sleep, that I could enjoy my life tomorrow like I did yesterday, but that's just not the case. Well, after the credit union was relocated and rebuilt, Florence said the days were different. Many customers cried when they came to the bank because they realized the person they knew wasn't working there. They had been killed. Florence has been interviewed dozens of times by the press. She's been asked about her feelings about her fallen team and the fall of the building over and over again. And here's what she says. When you're knocked down, you're left with two choices. Stay there or get up. And people ask me, how did you overcome the loss? My answer, I got up. No matter what life throws at you, you get up. Even if you need help, you get up. You know, I love Florence's approach to falling down. Get up. You know, the Japanese have a saying, fall seven, rise eight. It means that you get up. Even if you need help, you rise again. Florence wrote a short book about her experience during and after the Oklahoma City bombing. And what I love about her is she included a quote in the beginning of that book. And the quote is from Rocky Balboa. In the quote, Rocky is talking to his son who has fallen and wondering if he can rise again. And I suspect as you listen to this podcast today, many of you have recently fallen or feel low or battling a habit or working through a time in life in which things have been turned upside down. And if this is you, or you know someone close to you who is living through their own tragedy, please know that you are not alone. Even though it may seem like it's too hard to get up, try again. I promise you can. It is worth one more try. You can do what it takes to try again. There's hope, I promise, waiting on the other side of trying one more time. And what seems impossible may, in fact, be possible if you can just rise, stand up, try, re-engage one more time. And if that's you, take a lesson from Florence and Rocky Balboa. Here's what Rocky says, and you will see why Florence uses this quote. This is Rocky talking to his son. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are. It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Now, I agree with Florence and Rocky Balboa, or the writers of Rocky Balboa, the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. but. There is sunshine and rainbows waiting. And I know there is comfort and success waiting if you can rise again. Fall seven, rise eight. Now, some of you listening to this podcast are attempting to build a business or raise a family or other noble and worthwhile endeavors. And perhaps you're struggling a bit. If so, remember this lesson of one more time. Make an approach to that new potential customer one more time. You may be tired of hearing people say no. It's okay. On the other side of one more time lies the next success. You may be tired of trying with an uncooperative teenage daughter or son. Don't give up. Try one more time. Now, I've lived long enough to be certain about something. 
that we're all given hardships and difficulties for a reason. And part of that reason, I think, is to teach us more about ourselves, to help us become who we're supposed to become. And the other part is to give us the strength, the muscles to rise and learn how to rise so the next time something really critical comes along in life, we have the habit of rising. And when it comes time to help others, we have the confidence and faith to help them rise as well. And I do know that some of you are struggling with health issues, and you wonder if you can ever do what you did when you were younger to walk and run and enjoy life and have the health you used to have. If so, let me say this. Not many people nowadays read the Old Testament in the Bible. Perhaps it's because it seems out of date or irrelevant. Perhaps it's because we rely more on Google or Instagram for answers nowadays. And in the Old Testament, there are some books that are read less often than others. Isaiah is one of those less-read books. It's less-read because it's hard to understand and often repetitive and easy to dismiss and may not seem applicable to our lives today. But a little more than halfway through the book of Isaiah, as he writes to the children of Israel, he shifts gears from his warnings, understanding that they've now been conquered by their enemies and carried away into other lands and separated from their families and faith. As a people, they have fallen, they've lost, and they have no way to move forward. And Isaiah's message turns to hope. In the 40th chapter, Israel says, I can't see a way out. I've fallen. What can we do? There's no path for us. And to this, he speaks on behalf of God, as if God himself were speaking from the heavens and says, Have you not heard? Don't you know that the Lord, the creator of the earth, has the strength? and understand you and your situation. And he gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he gives strength. And then he says to those who keep their faith, that they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and walk and not faint. In other words, don't give up on your faith. God is a God of renewal and restoration, and your day is coming. We may have made mistakes, we may be stuck in a habit or a rut, but we can rise. And I believe you can rise and will rise and will walk and run on a new path if you just do whatever you can to try again. You know, on October 8th, 1871, in downtown Chicago, things seemed normal at 8.30 p.m., especially in a city of over 375,000 people. Chicago was a fast-growing metropolis and it was spurred on by an industrial boom. Chicago had grown to be the second largest city in the United States and one of the largest in the world. Its huge economy attracted thousands of immigrants from Europe and Central Europe. As a result of the extreme growth, real estate investors from all over the world flocked to build enough housing and buildings to accommodate the influx of population. New inventions in construction, tools, banking, trade, and a host of other advancements also attracted investment from many people. Well, that night in October, on Decoven Street in a small barn, a cow kicked over a lantern and a fire started that burned the barn's wood structure. Well, before fire crews could be summoned, the adjacent building also caught fire. Now, the preceding summer had been exceptionally dry, and as a result, there was a lot of dry fuel for the fire. And in the 1870s, most of the houses were made entirely from wood and had highly flammable tar roofs, and this allowed the fire to leap from house to house easily. 
Well, the fire grew so fast that the fire department got behind quickly. The Chicago Fire Department at the time had 185 firefighters and seven horse-drawn steam pumpers to protect the city. But the firefighters were initially sent to the wrong address, and by the time they got underway, there was no stopping the fire. Soon, the fire reached the business district. The firefighters hoped as the fire reached the river, it would serve as a fire break, but along the river's edge were lumber yards and barges, and when the fire reached these huge sources of fuel, it exploded. Flaming debris blew across the river, landed on roofs, and set ablaze the south side gas works. As the fire spread on the other side of the river and moved towards the heart of the city, the mayor of Chicago reached out to adjacent cities for help. Well, the fire burned unchecked from building to building, block to block, and by 2.30 p.m. the next day, the courthouse at the center of the city had burned to the ground. Now, thankfully, the next day, a rainstorm was on its way, but the winds preceding the storm whipped the fire in multiple directions. Finally, late in the day on October 9th, it started to rain and the fire succumbed to the moisture and the firefighters' efforts. But the Chicago fire destroyed more than 2,000 acres, 73 miles of roads, 2,000 lampposts, 17,000 buildings, and over $222 million in property, which was about a third of the city's value. Over 90,000 of the city's 324,000 residents were left homeless, and 300 people died. Now, real estate speculators and investors lost millions. Horatio Spafford was one of them. Like so many devastated by the fire, Horatio worked hard to recover from his losses. He had a growing family, and the losses required he worked doubly hard to regain his financial footing. Well, not long after the fire, Horatio's friend was preaching in England and invited Horatio and his family to spend time there. So Horatio's wife and his four daughters boarded the steamship Via de Havre and set out for England. Horatio planned to follow shortly thereafter. Well, the steamship set out with 313 passengers on board, and halfway across the Atlantic, about 2 a.m. in the morning, the ship encountered an iron clipper named Loch Urn, and both ships neglected to avoid the other. As they were about to collide, the captain of the Loch Urn turned his ship sharply, but the other ship came across his bow and he hit her broadside. The passengers were all awakened by the collision. At first, the crew and captain thought the ship was intact, but the truth was, the Villa de Havre was nearly broken in two. Commotion and chaos overtook the passengers as the main mast collapsed, smashing several lifeboats and killing a number of people. As passengers tried to grab life preservers and push lifeboats into the water, they found that the lifeboats had been painted and were stuck fast to the deck. Finally, a few lifeboats were pulled free, and a limited number of passengers fought desperately to be one of the few to get aboard the small craft. Well, the crew of the Loch Urn helped 26 passengers and 61 crew of the other ship out of the water, but tragically, 226 passengers perished. Anna Spafford survived, but her four daughters, Annie, age 12, Maggie, 7, Bessie, 4, and her 18-month-old baby all drowned. As a parent, how do you cope with such loss? What would you say to your husband? Well, Anna sent a telegram to her husband that said, Saved alone, what shall I do? 
Now, perhaps not to Horatio and Anna's extent, I think we all experience loss or feel burned out or underwater in our efforts or struggle from time to time. And perhaps our struggles are self-inflicted or the result of mistakes, or perhaps we're facing circumstances that came about simply in life's due course. Regardless, it's likely that all of us have experienced struggle or loss. And it's hard to think that comfort or relief can be found. Well, Horatio Spafford immediately boarded a ship and struck out for England to reach and comfort his grieving wife. At one point during his voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck the Spafford family, summoned Horatio to the bridge to tell him that they were now passing over the spot where the shipwreck had occurred. As Horatio looked down at the billowing waves and thought about his daughters buried there, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind. And he wrote them down, and they have since become lyrics to a well-beloved hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. One of those verses says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whether it's peace or the billowing sea that you face in any situation, do what Horatio did. Horatio decided that day on that ship sailing above the watery grave that held in its midst his four precious daughters, that he was going to keep his faith, that he would rise, that his soul was going to be well because he relied and had faith in a power that could sustain him. And Horatio would rise, and he would learn from that experience, and he would make different choices in his life. Now, the same goes for you and me. Mistakes or a fall or a pause or a failing doesn't need to define you. You are able to mount up with wings of eagles and rise to the person you can and should become. So, if all of this is true and the Japanese are right that in life we must learn to fall seven and rise eight, then what are some of the tools or perspectives that can help us as we try again? Well, here's the first. Do the next right thing. You know, sometimes it's overwhelming to map out the path of how you're going to turn your business around, for example. You've fallen so far that it may seem impossible. Well, just do the next right thing. You can at least do that, and the next right thing will get you one step higher than you've been. And often when you do the next right thing, it might not seem like much, but it's huge because the next right thing leads to the next right thing. You know, for years, I've taught this principle with a simple video from the Smithsonian Institute. It shows a school teacher conducting a simple test, and he has a tiny domino the size of a dime, and he places that domino on the ground in front of a domino that's twice its size, which stands in front of another domino twice its size, and on it goes for 13 dominoes. The 13th domino is the same height as the teacher. And when you look at the test, you never imagine that the domino the size of the dime, when it tips and hits the next domino, could eventually tip over a domino as tall as a man. Then the teacher tips the first domino, and it hits the next domino, which hits the next until the larger domino is toppled by the domino next to it that is half its size. Then the teacher says, if you have 30 dominoes laid out in this way, the 30th domino would be as tall as the Empire State Building. And you get the point that yes, a small domino as tall as a dime can in fact topple a domino as tall as the Empire State Building. Well, the same goes for you. 
the next right thing can lead to your doing the impossible. You may be stuck in a habit or a pattern of eating or not exercising or drinking or sleeping in or whatever the habit might be, and you think you can never change because you've never been able to change before. But just try doing the next right thing. And then the next day, do the next right thing and keep with it. And watch your power to do what you think you can't do or could never do will grow. In the movie Frozen 2, actress and voice Kristen Bell sings the lyrics to a song. And here's what the song says. I've seen the dark before, but not like this. This is cold. This is empty. This is numb. Hello, darkness. I'm ready to succumb. This grief has a gravity and it pulls me down. And a tiny voice whispers in my mind, you are lost. Hope is gone. But you must go on and do the next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take. But break it down to this next breath. Just do the next right thing. Take a step. Step again. It is all that I came to do. The next right thing. For example, in your business, the next right thing might be to keep your scheduled hours to personally approach new customers. Just do that. It will lead to new business partners. In a broken relationship, just do the next right thing. Apologize or show kindness. It will open doors. In your habits, just eat better today, during this lunch. It will lead to the next right thing tomorrow. Your next right thing may mean that today you smile, say prayers, tell someone you love them, ask for help, pick up the phone, ask the question, say no, say yes, set aside your pride, let someone else win, turn off social media, give extra effort, or whatever it might be. It will empower you for what's next. Now, on to another way to try again. Open your eyes. That's right, open your eyes. You see, too often we don't try because we can't see a way. There's great power in a new paradigm. Now, the definition of paradigm is a mental framework. You see, when we get a new paradigm, we get a new framework upon which we can view and act. And power comes to us when we realize there is a different, better view. For example, I teach a university course in business strategy, and this semester I have 60 extremely bright and capable students. And we teach concepts of strategy and discuss cases from real companies. And often, these companies have turned things around because of a paradigm shift, a new way of seeing things. And it happens in business and life all the time. For example, my oldest daughter worked through her teenage years becoming an accomplished singer. And she went to college on a vocal performance scholarship and pursued her passion relentlessly. Ironically, she has permanent hearing loss in her ears, and it impacted her singing and music pursuits significantly. Well, during her college years, she started to look at a new view of life and her talents. She put on a new mental framework, and this framework was based on a bit of a vision or a dream or inspiration that she felt. She was inspired one day with a glimpse into the future. And she saw herself as a mother, but not just any mother, one who loved her children excellently and was kind to them. This had a profound effect on her. It made an impression on her. And as a result, while she still pursues her vocal performance, she changed her path to be focused on the type of mother she wanted to be. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the path for all women, but it was for her. 
And your path may be to build a business or write a book or get a PhD or whatever you decide. But here's the point. She was able to rise in a certain direction because her paradigm changed. Now, I've seen many business leaders resurrect their business because they had a paradigm shift. For example, one leader I know changed everything about her business one day when she stopped approaching new customers with the mindset of how they could help her by shopping at her store. She was asking herself the question, who can help me? Instead, she had a paradigm shift and she opened her eyes, so to speak, and she realized that the only question she needed to answer was, who can I help? And how can I help them? When she started to examine how she could help them, the way she talked to them improved because it was relevant to their needs. She had more joy in her work because she started being effective at helping others and on and on it went. She started to rise in her business and life to heights she hadn't been before because of her paradigm shift. Now last, to rise and try again, ask for help. You know, this is so simple, but done so seldom that we forget the power of asking for help. Other people have been where you are today. They know what you don't know, and they have strength that you may not have today. So ask for help. You know, I don't know why we're reluctant to ask for help, or maybe we're too proud or embarrassed or afraid. I'm not sure. But I can tell you this. I have people ask me for help, and I never think less of them. In fact, I think more of them. And the truth is, most, if not all of us, need help in one way or the other. I promise the moment you reach out to the right person for help, you will begin to see a way out of your situation. Remember, most often when you pray to God, He responds by sending someone else to help you. But you need to be asking that someone else for help. So today, not tomorrow, think about who you could ask for advice or help or direction then don't delay. Reach out. A simple text is all it takes. Ask for 10 minutes and see if they could give you the help you need, and it can make a real difference. You know, recently, a friend of mine became president of a large company. He worked for me years ago, and one of the first things he did was ask for some time, and we sat down in my conference room and talked. He stood at the whiteboard and wrote down his challenges, and we brainstormed together the possible solutions. And he left with a new view, not because I said anything profound, but because he had a sounding board and the dialogue helped him get clarity. So ask for help and try again. Now, as we end today, remember, like Rocky and Florence said, life is tough and the measure of success is not whether you get knocked down, but whether you get back up. Like Horatio, you will see that in good times and bad, you can have peace and grow. And it will teach you that you can rise, you can recover, you can be redeemed. And to do so, to rise, do the next right thing today. You don't have to do everything, just the next right thing. And open your eyes to the new paradigms around you and seek to learn all you can. And most of all, ask for help. It's waiting for you to ask and will help you find clarity that will empower you. Most of all, Thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.